Today on Basic, the co-creator of MTV's The Real World, John Murray. What if we told these stories of these young people starting out their lives in New York with real young people? What if we put a group of them together who normally wouldn't live together from different backgrounds, race, socioeconomic, sexual orientation? We called it a docu though, because it was a docu, but it was soapy. When we were in that back room making the pilot, there was such an energy it was just infectious. I mean, you really felt like you had this voyeuristic experience of being somewhere you maybe you weren't supposed to. Um, MTV did say to us, well, what if nothing happens? And we said, well, if nothing happens, we'll throw pebbles in the pond. Generally, after about two weeks together, the cast gets exhausted and you're gonna have a, a week where nothing happens. And of course, we panicked. And MTV was like, what's going on? Wait, 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 nothing's happening. And so we said, okay, we'll throw a pebble in the pond. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic, the official podcast of the unofficial history of cable television. I'm Doug Herzog, a former TV executive who never lived with seven strangers. And I'm Jen Cheney, TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine. And I have lived with strangers, but there were only three of them. Today, we're going to be joined by a true television legend, Jen, John Murray, who, along with his former partner, Mary Ellis Bunham, created the real world and in the process, a whole new genre of television. It's just really hard to believe that the real world debuted on an unsuspecting MTV audience 30 years ago. And honestly, TV has not been the same since, I don't think. Do you remember watching the real world when it first came on? You know, I didn't see it when it first came on um, because I didn't have cable. <laughs> But when I finally moved into like my own place post-college, like I remember very specifically that the first day I was really moved in, I turned on the TV and there was a real world marathon and I just sat there for like eight hours and I was so happy. And then you were hooked, early exactly. binging. Well, we're going to stop being polite. We're going to get real with John Murray right now. And of course, stay tuned after the uh, interview when Jen and I will talk about what we learned. John Murray, welcome to Basic. We're so happy to have you with us. We always start off the episode by asking our guests a question, which is, can you remember when you got Basic Cable? Yeah, I think I got it when we sold our first cable TV show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I also remember um, the first show I really remember, like being super excited about being on you know, to have cable was the Larry Sanders show. Ah, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. The, the, the old, uh, the old Showtime show. What? The I first one or, or, or the, the, or the HBO, uh, oh, Larry Sanders. The, yeah. Oh, the Larry HBO. Sanders. Show. Oh, not, uh, yeah. Not Gary Shandling show. The Larry no, Sanders show. Yeah. Right. Oh, yes. there you go. All right. So anyway, yeah, that was a great show. That was a great show. One of the, one of the, one of the greats, but you're not a cable guy originally, right? You started in local television. I did. I did. I, I went to the University of Missouri School of Journalism because 98% of their students who graduated got jobs right away. And I like that. Journalism? That doesn't yes, sound right. I, I went, well, you should have gone to Missouri. Uh, <laughs> I, I went right to work in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I think it was the 65th or 85th market. And I produced the 10 o'clock news in Green Bay, Wisconsin for about... Uh, nine months until I got a job offer in Atlanta. And I was there for a while, then Rochester, then Cleveland, finally got to New York and sort of switched from news to programming TV stations. And in New York, I helped program 40 stations around the country and really started to learn what, like, how did this universe work? Mm -hmm. 
And what brought you together with, uh, ultimately with your real world co-creator, Mary Elspunum? When I was in New York working for this uh, television rep firm that sold the National Spot Time, I was helping them with helping their stations schedule so that they would get big ratings, like put Oprah Winfrey at four, use People's Court as a lead into news because it'll bring male viewers, those kinds of things. The people that were pitching me their shows, I turned around and started pitching them ideas I had for shows. And so I sold my first show to a company called New World Television. It's gone now. And, and that first show was called Crime Diaries. And it was a little bit like Law and Order. It was I researched a bunch of crime cases at the New York Public Library. And then with Mary Alice created a, a group of fictional detectives who were going to solve those cases. And um, we sold it to a company called Quintex for syndication. And we made a pilot, but we didn't sell enough stations. So it did not go forward. I believe the the idea to develop a show for MTV, like that was, someone suggested that to the two of you. And I think if if what I read was correct, or no, you're shaking your head. No, no. no um, go ahead. No, what happened was, and Doug probably remembers this better than I do, Mary Ellis, you know, my late partner, was the queen of daytime TV. She had produced some of the biggest daytime shows. And NBC, MTV called her and asked, told, asked her if she would help them <laughs> develop a, a low-budget sort of soap about young people starting out their lives. And now right. Doug's shaking his head yes. No that's, no, that's all absolutely correct. We had this idea to do, this was kind of the era of, I think, like Melrose Place and 90210 mm-hmm. had just started. And we decided we wanted to do an, an everyday soap opera, like, like your grandma's soap, like, you know, One Life to Live or General Hospital and put it on every day, five days a week, but with young adults. And I mentioned this to, of all people, Fred Silverman. And he said, you have to meet Mary Ellis Bunham, who used to produce soaps, I guess, at NBC for him. So he connected me with Mary Ellis. Now I'm going to ask a slightly delicate question about Mary Ellis. How old was she then? I think she was probably in her early 40s. Right. So she was a she was a 40 year old woman. And I remember, you know, the MTV was literally and John could attest to this. I mean, it was filled with 25 year olds. Um, it was it was a place by and for young people. And I bring in Mary Ellis to help um, uh, develop the soap and got a lot of funny looks like, who is this woman and what is she doing here? And what does she know about rock and roll? And the answer was nothing, but she knew a lot about soaps. And we hired her to consult with us on building out this idea for a soap. And she was probably there. I think she had an own office there for a minute. She's probably there for a couple of months till I finally realized, which I should have known from the beginning, MTV couldn't afford to make a soap opera. Well, not only could you couldn't afford it, but you weren't willing to let someone else own it because no, we right, that's fun. right. We went to Haim Saban and he was really willing to fund it but, and own it, but you guys didn't want to let someone else own it. I forgot that part, John. Thank you. <laughs> so, so we very sheepishly folded our tents and Mary Ellis went on her way. And I, I kind of thought that maybe that was the last I'd ever see of Mary Ellis. And I don't know how long the gap was. Maybe you remember till you very came back. Very short, very short, because you don't realize how desperate Mary Ellis and I were <laughs> at that point. I mean, we had had we we had had at least four and a half years of making pilots, and you don't make any money on pilots. And I had I had cashed in all my Sapphires. I was driving mm-hmm. a twelve-year-old Honda Accord. I was living in a garage apartment in in Hollywood. 
Um, Mary Ellis had gone to work for Loving because she had to pay the mortgage. She had, she had a daughter, right? She had a daughter and yeah. a husband who she was supporting. Right. So, so um, yeah, we were super desperate. So, so we were not going to let this 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 Doug Herzog saying no <laughs> go forward. And so we came up with this idea. Well, what if we did? a real life soap opera. What if we told these stories of these young people starting out their lives in New York with real young people? What if we put a group of them together who normally wouldn't live together from different backgrounds, race, socioeconomic, sexual orientation? Because I had had that experience in college where I was suddenly thrown together with, a diff with different people from me and there was a lot of conflict, but out of that conflict came growth. And that was basically what we pitched to Lauren Correo, Doug's programming exec, um, at the Mayflower Hotel on Central Park West. We pitched her this idea and she looked at us, she goes, oh my God, I experienced that when I moved to New York. I get it, I get what you're saying. There's a story there. And um, she said, I'm gonna go talk to Doug. And I, by noon, I think she had called us back and said, yeah, let's make a pilot. Now." We didn't realize that that meant we were going to be using high eight cameras. <laughs> I mean, it is MTV, not a lot of money. Was part of the calculus that you did that doing a, a reality show like the one you were proposing would be less expensive yes. than the soap? Yeah. Yes, because the soap was too expensive for MTV. So mm -hmm. we said, let's do real people. We'll use camera people just out of film school and, you know, we'll just do it real low budget. And they said yes. But effectively, it was, I mean, you could argue that it kind of was a soap opera in terms of you're following the drama amongst people. There just happened to be not acting. <laughs> yeah, and we're, we're applying the principles of dramatic storytelling to how we tell the story. So we're mm -hmm. looking for an A and a B story. We're looking for how is this character going to be changed? What's the inciting incident in the episode? So I had taken the Robert McKee story structure course. And so oh, okay. I'm, I'm applying all those principles. And of course, Mary Ellis is the queen of storytelling. I mean, she goes, okay, who's our hunk? You know, <laughs> what's going to be his arc? You know, and so she's like, well, and, you know, and sometimes people would come in and say, well, this is what happened. She goes, yeah, that's chronologically what happened. But how do you tell that story so it's interesting? So, you know, she was great at really forcing us to think about how you tell stories, not just giving it back to the viewer as it happened. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. 
I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. John, do you remember when you were pitching it, like how you talked about it? Because the, the term reality television did not exist then. Uh, the term unscripted television was not a, a thing we said in the TV business back then. And I, I sort of remember, you know, a lot of people, obviously, you know, I think we talked, I'm sure we talked about it at the time, compared it to uh, an American family, which was a documentary. And so did, was it pitched we as a doc it, or? We called it a docu soap. We called it a docu soap because it was a docu, but it was soapy, and um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was how we. There was the term reality TV did not exist at that time. Can you talk about the casting aspect of it, like especially in the first season when you're, you know, really inventing this thing? Like, how did you go about finding, you know, a group of people and and people that came from diverse backgrounds? Yeah, first of all, you got to remember, this is before the internet existed. So basically, we're putting up flyers. And we're putting up flyers in laundromats where young people go to wash their clothes. With a little (laughs) number, you can peel off the number and call, you know, free rent, you know, uh, cool TV show thing, you know, social experiment. And we would get calls. And then we would also just be walking down the street and find two people that looked interesting and ask them to come in and talk to us. And then we also contacted some of the modeling agencies. And because it was MTV, I think we all agreed it would be good if the people we cast were somehow connected either to the music business or at least artistic or, you know, had some kind of sort of a creative focus. So that first season, you know, most of the young people were either musicians or writers or artists. Can we just go back to the pile before we move on? So the way I tell the story is you guys came in with your pilot, which is probably about 20 minutes long, as I remember, shot over three or four days. Two episodes. Two episodes. And and I remember thinking, I was like, this this feels like a show. Like, this kind of floats. It kind of works. When did... When did you have that moment? Like, when did you, what, at what part of the process did you go, hey, I think we really have an actual idea here that's going to float? We had this at the same moment that Lauren Correo did. I mean, when we were in that, in that like back room making the pilot, 
and the cast had all arrived and they were like bouncing off of each other and people were sitting in places you wouldn't expect them to sit. There was such an energy. It was just infectious. I mean, you really felt like you had this voyeuristic experience of being somewhere you maybe you weren't supposed to, watching these people sort of play up to each other, have fights with each other. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was just, we hadn't seen it before. It felt so fresh. Um, I think that was the moment we felt we had something really special. And then as this wonderful editor, editor Alan Cohn, started to put the episode, the pilot together, and he started using music stripped off of the music videos, and he started putting in jump cuts, and he just gave this thing a stylistic look that just had not been seen. And the way the stories were told, the way we jump about from thing to thing, we were breaking all these traditional rules of storytelling, but it was fresh and it was fun to watch. I want to go back to something you were talking about earlier in terms of storytelling and the idea that you weren't just reflecting back, here's every little thing that they did. You were really kind of trying to shape a narrative. Talk a little bit about how that works, because you know, those of us who were watching, we assumed that what we were seeing was, was real. So I think you want to have that authenticity, but how do you, how do you shape a narrative without influencing what's actually happening between the people on the show? Um, MTV did say to us, well, what if nothing happens? And we said, well, if nothing happens, we'll throw pebbles in the pond. And so what we didn't know is generally after about two weeks together, the cast gets exhausted and you're going to have a, a week where nothing happens. And of course, we panicked. And MTV was like, what's going on? Wait, 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 nothing's happening. And so we said, okay, we'll throw a pebble in the pond. <laughs> and so we took this book called Bear Pond that Herb Ritz had shot, and it had a bunch of nude, gorgeous guys in it. And one of those nude, gorgeous guys was Eric Neese. And so we stuck it in with some of the other books, you know, this was, we started two weeks after we'd start shooting and Heather B finds it and she finds Eric in it and she just goes to town. She, I mean, she had already had some issues with him. He was a pretty boy model and, you know, and, and she was making fun of him and Eric didn't blame her. He blamed us for putting the book in there. And so we learned a valuable lesson is you don't want him blaming you. So we apologized to the cast. We said we wouldn't use that footage and uh we moved on and and you know and and stuff started to happen we regained trust of the cast and um somehow we managed to make 13 episodes but it and, was, and wasn't it was was the first season wasn't uh, you took him to jamaica right yeah we took him that was another thing was and, um, and what was one of with one of our producers sort of broke the fourth wall as they say <laughs> <laughs> yeah we had one of our other rules was there's a strict line between the cast and uh the production team because we said, we want, if something happens, we want them to go to each other. We don't want them coming to us. So the mm -hmm. relationship has to be between the seven of, of them. Our relationship is a professional relationship. And so, yeah, in Jamaica, and we sent them to Jamaica because, well, we didn't have a lot of money, but we could afford to send at least three people. So we sent the three girls. I think we had a trade-out deal with hedonism. That's right. And, um, <laughs> and the idea was the girls weren't getting any in New York, so we'll send them to Jamaica <laughs> and maybe they'll get some. And uh, meanwhile, the boys were pissed at us because why are you just sending them? And they get down there and they're having a good time. And I guess they went to some reggae concert and there was some like 
you know, we had permission to shoot, but then one of the bands didn't want us shooting. And so there was this crazy chase back to the hotel where the, like these, these people were in a van chasing our kids in the van and we just got through the gate and then they came into the hotel. And of course the hotel got rid of them. But anyway, I guess Bill, the director felt he needed to comfort Becky and Becky seemed to want comforting. And, um, they crossed, uh, yeah, cross the I line, like cross the yeah, Rubicon. And, and as Becky said in her interview, she sucked him through the fourth wall. <laughs> uh, and then, um, and Bill, then, and then I got the pleasure of firing Bill. And then, of course, Bill continues to see Becky, uh, and so now he's uh, sort of the eighth character in the show. <laughs> And then yeah, because he, he shows up in the show later on, if I remember. Yeah, and then he made, um, he directed Andre's video. Andre needed a video and he hired Bill to do it. So Bill sort of became, he was, he, he could have been nominated for two Emmys, both as director <laughs> and as a cast member. At what point did you realize that the show was a success? Like, was it as soon as it started airing? Did it take some time for you to realize that people were, you know, into this? The first episode went on the air um, in May of 1992, and the typical primetime rating in the MTV demo, which was, I think, 12 to 24, right. was about a 0.3. And mm. real world, that first episode popped a 0.9. So we mm. tripled the primetime normal average. So we were a success right off the bat, and then the number kept growing. Listen, I am just appreciative that someone cared about Generation X for this very brief window of time <laughs> and cared about our experiences. Well, you know what was now we should talk content because what was great about the real one was when MTV gave us complete freedom to cast. So we cast this really interesting group of people and we didn't necessarily know where this story would take us, but we had some amazing um, story about race and about racism. And there were like, important conversations happening there that young people all across America were seeing and were learning from and growing from well, seeing those conversations. And not, and not only race, I mean, sexuality, uh, abortion, uh, of course, you know, the storyline around Pedro Zamora and yeah. being HIV positive and AIDS. So that was something, you know, you know, along with all the antics, which now seem quaint compared to latter day real world you know there were there were issues and you know things of real substance but over time the real world sort of became something else and that got pushed to the back is that a fair assessment well, you would still have those moments when you'd have you know like uh, danny in real world brooklyn had been in iraq as a u.s military person and he was having ps uh post-traumatic distress or something. And so there were issues that would come up. But I think young people who were on the show were more comfortable being on TV. I mean, that first season was very chaste, other than Bill and mm -hmm. Becky. I mean, not right. there wasn't a lot happening from from the uh from under the covers. And so people just became more comfortable with expressing their sexuality. And you know what, I don't know how much real world played in that. And then of course now with social media, people share every intimacy about their lives. So, I mean, in some ways, real world really uh, was part of that chronology of how people well, sort of opened up their lives to the public. Mm -hmm. I, I always say, you know, that you, I think you can draw a straight line from the real world to like selfies, mm -hmm. you know, because for us at MTV, you know, we would talk about it, you know, even then it was 
obvious to us. Like the idea of turning the camera on the audience was kind of a revelation. They were like, oh my God, they really want, they, they want to see themselves more than they want to see almost any rock star. Yeah. And, and it was revelatory. And as I, you know, as you look at how the world evolved, it, I, you know, I, I go real world selfie and there's, I think you could draw, I think you could draw a straight line. Is that you, would you agree with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And we were, you know, we were uh, young people starting out with season three when we did real world London and we were going to have a couple of Europeans in the cast. We had to make sure that their English was good enough. So that's when we started asking people to send in a tape to make a tape of themselves, you know, and they'd go to Best Buy, get a camera, return it the next day after they made their casting tape, <laughs> um, you know, uh, or they'd come to these massive auditions we'd have where 2,000 kids would be lined up to, 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 for a chance to uh, sit at a table with 12 other kids and uh, maybe they would be chosen to move to the next step. And at least initially, after the first season, it seems like maybe one of your takeaways might have been that you wanted to have that kind of social, um, you know, in keeping with what had happened on the first season with conversations about race, to have that kind of social discussion, to have something that was relevant. Because that, that, at least early on, like Doug was saying, that, that felt like a, a consistent thread. Yeah. And I mean, we wanted that, but there was no guarantee of it. I mean, we did mm -hmm. not, cat when we cast Tammy Akbar in season two, we didn't know she was pregnant. She didn't know she was pregnant at the time mm. so that just i think and that's that's the cool thing about you know reality is that you cast these people and then you go where the story takes you now yes yeah, so when we went to san francisco in season three we wanted to find someone who was hiv positive to be part of the cast because in san francisco in 1993 to avoid that story would have been false i mean that story mm -hmm. was part of what was going on in that city and in other big cities in america but it happened that pedro sent us a letter from miami you know we had someone looking in san francisco for someone who was hiv positive but pedro came in through miami and uh uh, that's how he ended up in the show. Well, and as important and obvious as it was to you to cast somebody like Pedro, the, you know, the flip side of that, putting somebody like Pedro on national television was a huge deal in 1993. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, nobody, I mean, nobody, nobody was talking about that. Right, right. Yeah, no one was talking about that. And yeah, there had been like an early Frost, a TV movie with Aiden right. Quinn. Um, there had been a few things, but nothing that would reach young people the way having Pedro on The Real World did. You know, as President Clinton said, Pedro being on The Real World did, did loads more than anything his administration could have done to sort of educate people about HIV AIDS and to uh, create a more compassionate world for people with HIV AIDS. Do you have a, uh, do you have a favorite season? I think it's always going to be New York because New York, I did most of the interviews. So I was there, I was living it. And, you know, that season we were so understaffed. We were so exhausted by the time we finished. I mean, it was, we were in like Sherman's March. We were just trying to get to the end date. We all just went into massive depressions after it was over because we had had this goal that we had to reach and we finally reached the goal. And now, now what do I do? I'm, what do I, I'm, I'm normally working 19 hours a day. Like, what do I do now? So, yeah, that, that season always going to be a favorite because I was so emotionally involved in it because I was right. right there in the loft 
you know, in the control room, doing the interviews. And then as the show had success and we spun off road rules and we started doing other shows, you know, I was more back at corporate headquarters and not as emotionally connected, even though Mary Ellis and I would always be very much involved in the casting and, and the storytelling. So if I can jump a little forward in your career and ask you, you know, later on, you were a producer of some other reality shows like Simple Life and Keeping Up with the Kardashians. And and those are almost to me like the inverse of what the real world was and that you're starting with people who are famous and well-known and trying to tell their stories, which to me seems like it would be harder. Can you talk a little bit about, was that an adjustment for you to be featuring people who are already celebrities when they walk in the door? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot easier to deal with a young person who isn't famous, doesn't have a manager, um, who, you know, who you have to convince to read the contract and maybe take it to their Uncle Larry, who's a lawyer to look at, versus, you know, dealing with Kardashians or Paris Hilton, where, you know, they're going to have lawyers and managers and all sorts of people that are going to be part of that process. But, you know, Simple Life is a little different from Kardashians in that Simple Life was, it was inspired by the real life Green Acres, by, by, we wanted yeah. real life Green Acres. Right. And we were working with Fox and um, Fox, uh, the head of casting there, Sharon, had met with Paris and we started talking about, well, you know, people know Paris Hilton, Hilton Hotel chain, heiress has spent most of her time on the coast, never been to the middle of the country, and certainly not to a family farm. Who do we put with her? You know, we tried her sister out. We tried a bunch of people, and then in walked Nicole Richie, and oh my God, the two of them started telling tales of being high school students at Buckley together and all the mean girl stuff they did. And we were just laughing. And so we, we had found, you know, the perfect thing. So, and then, you know, they were fish out of water. It's an old television story, you know, the fish out of water and, you know, and we put them in high heels and fur coats and stuck them in a Ford pickup truck and off they went to the family farm and it was great. And then of course we set up, we had to have a structure so the, the family would connect them to jobs. And so each episode would have a job that they had to do. And of course, the family we cast had a really cute 17-year-old son. And of course, you know, there was some shenanigans there. And, uh, you know, uh, so it, was, it worked amazingly well. And, it, you know, when that first episode of Simple Life went on, 14 million people. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had never seen numbers that big because yeah. I was in cable, you know, and, and we easy, were easy, John, easy. I know. I mean, real world would get up, I mean, in its day, real world would get up to like 2.1 million to two, but 14 million was pretty exciting. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Kardashians, you know, happened because uh, Lisa Berger, who had been one of our executives at MTV on the Real World, was running programming at E! And she called me up and she says, Ryan Seacrest has this tape of this girl, Kim, I want, and her family. I want to send it to you. Do you think there's a show there? I watched it. And I said, oh, my God, this is a perfect show. You've got the conservative dad. You've got the mom and your mother who's into everybody's business. You've got the three daughters who are each unique and different. And then you've got these two younger girls who turns out one of them would become a future billionaire. And, um, <laughs> you know, and it was, and then you had this like, this, this 
Scott, who was interested in Courtney, but he was like a little bit of a flim flam guy. And and Chris, I remember her, she said, I have my eyes on you, Scott. Yeah, I think we did a deal over the weekend and we were in pre-production on the Monday. And uh, wow. it was great. Um, the first time I went over and met them, Chris had cooked dinner. We were all sitting around and, you know, it was just like, it was amazing. And if you look at those early Kardashian episodes, they were very innocent, uh, you know, as opposed to where we are now with them and their new show on Hulu. Um, you know, now it's Tales of the Super Rich. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I'm, I'm curious with with a show, specifically the Kardashians, I think, what was it like to try to figure out what the quote unquote arcs and narratives are going to be? Because I would imagine, you know, Kim and all of the people in the family like had some very specific ideas and that it was, you well, know. When you, when, you, when you do a show like that, you basically meet with the, the, the cast, with each family member individually, you find out what's going on in their life, what they want to do, what their motivations are, who they might be having issues with. And then you, you know, start to follow. You say, yeah, I'd like to follow that story. Mm -hmm. Um, And you start following those stories. You don't necessarily tell the other person in the family what this person is up to. So as a producer, you sort of know all the dynamics of what's going on. And then you're following it. And, you know, and you're saying, yeah, you should do that next week. Um, Mm -hmm. That's your plan. Because you're thinking, yeah, that'll work well with this thing that her sister's doing that she doesn't know about. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So it's. Did you you ever get pushback? It's a different kind of television. I always call it, it's sort of like appointment television in that you're making appointments to shoot stories and stuff mm-hmm. within the family. Whereas real world, you're just shooting everything. You're constantly right. running cameras. Yes, sometimes you have to decide whether to follow Becky and Bill here or Kevin there. But with the Kardashians or a show like that or the Housewives, generally, you know what you're going to shoot each day. Did you ever get pushback about suggestions you were making from any of them or... No, they were, I mean, that was the amazing thing about the Kardashians were they were so open to the process. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, I mean, Chris got it. She knew that this would be amazing for the family, that this would open up a lot of doors. She saw the importance of it. And, and Chris was the one who, you know, when some of the, some of the family would get a little tired of it, she was the one who would sit him down and say, no, this is the family business. You need to pull your share of the family business. Mm. Well. Reality TV takes a lot of shit from 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 folks um, for some good reasons and some not for some not so good great reasons. When you you know sort of sit back and you look at your shows and your career, how do you look at the the world of reality television? What do you think the contributions have been? And there and there have been many. Um, uh, and and what are you proud of? Still? Yeah, I mean, I think that reality TV really led the way was much more on top of it than scripted in terms of more diversity within the cast and certainly highlighting issues that primetime scripted television was not doing. I mean, I think the interesting thing about the real world, it's like when Tammy found herself pregnant and had to decide whether she was going to keep the baby or terminate the pregnancy. That wasn't something a writer wrote. And we didn't get any criticism for airing that because that's just what happened. We told the story and we had this beautiful story because John Brennan, her roommate, who was very much opposed to abortion, he stated that to her, but he said, I'm not going to like walk away from you because you're my friend and I'm going to support you through this. So, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of people who don't know each other yelling at each other over an issue. It was Mm -hmm. people who had become family. And now you're watching them 
maintain their relationship as a family, but deal with an important issue that they disagree on. So I really feel I'm very proud of, you know, the fact that, you know, eight years after the real world survivor and then amazing race and big brother, they've all had multiracial casts and they haven't been afraid to tell those stories when they come up. So, yeah, so, so. I, and, and they certainly probably don't exist without the real world. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, and I think that particularly in the case of the real world, I think there was a whole, gen, whole generation, several generations that grew up sort of seeing that, you know, there was something excitement, exciting about the idea of diversity. Meeting people who have different life experiences is actually really fun and sort of expands who you are. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that MTV audience that is so different from their parents in terms of how they look at sexuality, I think MTV and the real world had a huge role in that. Well, John, it has been a pleasure to have you. We are longtime fans of the real world. Um, you certainly know that from myself, but I know Jen is as well. And uh, we're so happy you were able to join us uh, here today on Basic. Thanks for coming. Thank you. It was fun, uh, fun talking about it. So that was John Murray, the great granddaddy of reality television. Uh, really interesting conversation, I thought. So, Jen. The real world, the ultimate Gen X show, right? It is in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's funny because when you were talking during the interview about like people complaining that MTV wasn't showing music videos anymore because they were getting taken over by the real world and all these other shows that you guys were launching. And I remember being mad about that at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Are you you still mad? I just. No, no, I'm not. And I I think, as I said, like especially in retrospect, there was this little sliver of time in like the early nineties when like people gave a shit about Gen X and then it went away, <laughs> but it was, it, it feels more special and precious to me now. I noticed no one cares I, about I, us anymore. Well, well I was going to say, I noticed, <laughs> I noticed you're a fan of those revivals. So like you really like catching up with your old Gen X friends. Yeah. I mean, especially the New York one, I think just because it was first and, um, I watched it on, on Paramount plus before I watched the reunion and it, those, those, seasons are just such a wonderful like time capsule in so many different ways of just like what things look like at that time the pop culture at that time what people were wearing um yeah i i really enjoyed that you know i now i'm thinking jen off the top of my head i think from here on in i'm gonna refer to you as gen x i'll be i'll be i'll I'll be doug boomer oh god you know (laughs) what if you're willing to call yourself that before i I I can doug okay boomer i can call myself yeah yeah doug middle name okay Last okay. The other interesting thing that he said that, you know, I have spoken about many times from my vantage point was that he he wasn't sure it was going to be more than one season. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was this great experiment and nobody knew what to make of it or what it was or what the what the reaction would be. And I think I've said this probably on this show and probably certainly to you. But during that first season, I was convinced it was might only be one season because, you know, the kids who were in that first cast, they had no expectations going in. Right. And then they became like these like sort of cult stars and little MTV celebrities and their lives changed dramatically. And I thought, oh my God, well, the experiment's over because now any kid that comes in to the next season is going to have real expectations about how to make themselves famous or that they're going to get famous and they're going to be insufferable to watch and annoying and over the top and no one's going to want to watch them. And mm-hmm. I couldn't have been more wrong because... The more insufferable, the more annoying, the more over the top they were, the more people watched. And mm-hmm. and they're still watching, which is 
kind of incredible. The show's still going. Got to ask them that. I gosh, I should. I know they, I know they stopped. I know they stopped there for a minute, right? Um, when yeah. It, it like moved to Facebook or something. Yeah. The, I don't know if I don't think it's still going right now. I, I I feel like it's just the reunion ones, but I. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Yeah, same here. We should probably know that, right? <laughs> we probably should. <laughs> I'm going to call our research department and get on them for not uh, not uh, getting our research day. department, which is me and Doug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the real world clearly, you know, ground zero for reality television, unscripted television, whatever you want to call it. And that, you know, as we talked about, you know, reality TV and the real world take a lot of shit for past transgressions, but they all but they all, but on another you know level they they really did bring a lot of interesting and noteworthy things to the landscape and the party mm-hmm. um, yeah i think so i mean certainly in the case of the real world as we discussed just representing you know we talked about you know pedro and hiv but just representing all these different kinds of experiences and backgrounds that people had we didn't talk about this from season 1 but that was there was a gay character in season 1 and that uh, you know right. pre-pedro norman Right, sure. Norman. And that was that was also a big deal at the time because you just did not see um a no. young gay, gay person on TV being being represented, you know, just as they o- go about their regular life. Authentically, exactly. Right, right. Not in like kind of a Hollywood, you know, sort of trumped up way. Right. So I think all of that has been an incredible val- valuable service. But I think to your earlier point, that in general within that genre, you know, it it quickly morphed into people using reality tv to get attention to make a comeback if they had been let's say an actor and kind of like stopped getting jobs like there are certainly people who use reality tv to be attention grabbers and that's i think less of a service than uh some of the other things it's capable of doing you know we have seen that happen many times um there are those who say uh you know some of those people have ended up in in office <laughs> and uh you know I, I can't imagine who you're referring to <laughs> you know you could you, so you know you could draw a straight line from well not you could draw lines from the creation of the real world to a lot that's happened in this country over the last 30 years and by the way um it is 30 years ago it was 1992 uh that mm-hmm. the uh, that the real world premiered so uh we have uh we've come a long way in many ways and in some ways not so much yeah uh I don't know what to say to that other than that. I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to John Murray and going back uh, and hearing the origin story of the real world and hope that uh, you'll join Jen and I next time on Basic. Basic is a Pantheon Media production in partnership with Sirius XM, hosted by Jen Cheney and Doug Herzog, produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget forget to follow the show so you you never never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.